You are going to love this edition of Reader House Author Roundtable or else. I'm just kidding. I'm Alice Dockton Rossini, but check this out. Anthony Ramondi claims his cousin, a cardinal who ran the Vatican Bank, recruited him to be the lookout guy while Pope John Paul I was poisoned in 1978. Forget about reports he died of a heart attack. He's got never before heard details on the Lufthansa heist and Jimmy Hoffa's murder, among other revelations that'll make your head spin in his book entitled When the Bull it hits the bone. All right, we're going to start with the Pope's alleged murder. Your cousin was the cardinal running the Vatican Bank and just one of a couple of relatives that were at the Vatican at the time. Yes, they had to go to my grandfather to get my grandfather's okay because Jacob Marcinkus was a cousin to us and the other cardinals. They were cousins to my grandfather. They went to see my grandfather, Antonio. They told him what was going on. He had to give the okay because it was from the stock fraud from the 70s that this happened. So what happened with the stock? Can you boil that down for me? Basically, what it was, my cousin Luigi Raimondi came to me when I came home in 1975. He called me up from the Vatican, and they flew in to see me. They told me about the stock fraud that they had. That Pope Paul VI gave them the okay, and they were counterfeiting the stocks. They were selling it all over the world. They sent me the stocks. I sent them out. I had a friend of mine that worked in commodities in the New York stock market. And his nephew worked in, like, the precious metals and the oil and the silver and AT&T and all that. So I gave him stocks to handle. There was a guy, Pete Martell, in Jersey. But his real name was Petey Rayo, but he went by Pete Martell, Petey Matza. I gave him the stocks, and he was related to the old man Rayo, who was the big boss in Jersey. He put it in the stock markets in Jersey, and I had a friend of mine in Chicago Mercantile, and I sent stocks out there. Anyway... Like, it was raining money, let's put it that way. That's the best thing that I can say. And uh, when Pete Martell, he got pinched, we didn't know about it. He got arrested. We got the word. And I got me and a couple of my guys, and I ran to Italy. We went there. FBI came there to take us. They couldn't touch us because I'm in Vatican City. It's considered a country within a country, and there's no extradition. So they made a deal, my cousin Jacob Marcinkus, and, uh, and we gave them X amount of dollars back. And then we gave them a list of everybody. We had a list of everybody who we sold the stocks to. And this is how we made a deal with the FBI. So here's the list of all the people. Here's X amount of dollars. They gave him about $500 million to be exact. That's what they gave him back. So we could come home. But he says, go to all these people. Tell them that there was either a flood or a fire. The stocks got destroyed. And we're issuing you new stocks. See, the thing is this. My cousin had a fail-safe. The counterfeit stocks had the same batch number, rounding number, and serial number as the originals that the Vatican owned. And when he brought that up to the FBI, he says, listen, I'll make it no public. He says, you go into a recession, you'll never come out of it. You go into a depression. So they made the deal. And the FBI or whoever, the Treasury Department or whoever it was, got in touch with the people who just got the stocks, and they issued them new stocks. Meanwhile, it's still floating around to this day. So now Pope Paul VI dies. And Pope John Paul I comes in. Now, I have more detail in book two about Pope John Paul I, but I'll just give you a little hint. Pope John Paul I, his last name is Rukaina. My Uncle Lucky and my last name is Rukaina. When my Uncle Lucky came to the country here, they changed it to Luciano. Pope Paul I was his kid cousin. He decided that he was going to excommunicate and defrock everybody which meant everybody was going to fall under Italian law and United States. 
that everybody would be going away for a long time and the party was going to be over. But you got to remember, in the Vatican, they were partying all the time in the Vatican with the money. Because there was so much money coming into the Vatican, they couldn't keep count. When they put it this, when they hatched the plot, they put it together. They seen my grandfather. They called me and they wanted to know, how can we do it where he dies peacefully? So I told them what to do with the value and everything. And I had to be their witness before God. This is how much they are in the Vatican. Oh, I told them, what do you mean I got witness to God? They says, when we die, we can tell God, well, we didn't make him suffer when he died. And our cousin Anthony over here was our witness. I mean, this is their thinking. I mean, you know, but when you got hundreds of billions of dollars, I mean, I guess you could think anything you want. So you waited outside the Pope's quarters while they poisoned the Pope with cyanide. I said the truth. And I tell them, exhume his body and do the test. You'll see exactly what I'm saying. All right. You also talk about the Lufthansa heist. Henry Hill was full of bullshit. He was a liar. He had nothing to do with Lufthansa. He wasn't even privy to that information. Not at all. He turned around. He gave up Paul Vario. He gave up uh, Jimmy Burke and everybody. And then he knew about Lufthansa common sense because of what was being said. So he made up a story and the feds let him run with it. There was a lot more than the six million because there was five million in jewelry in the container that was outside. And you had 30 million in bearer bonds in the other container. All right. What about Martin Scorsese? You love him as a director, but... They made a big mistake with the Irishman because it's not true. Now, you want to ask me, how do I know it's not true? How do you know it's not true? Because two of the events in the Irishman, the movie, Mm -hmm. that was my father who did it. The one where Albert Anastasia gets killed in the barbershop, yeah. my father was one of the shooters. And when Joe Gallo got killed, you see the guy runs out, he falls on the floor, and he shoots him in the back? Yeah. My father was outside. He put the last two bullets in Joe Gallo. My father's the one who killed him. Okay. And you did a lot of fundraising for Ed Koch. And all the money was going to Koch, but we took our bed. Now we started getting everybody involved. Now we were doing it all over Brooklyn. Got to the point, Bess Meyerson would meet me at Dominic's house, I'd give her the bag with the money. She'd go open it up. She'd put her little attache case, put it up nice. We'd talk, and off she'd go. All right, we got to wrap this up. You picked Paige because other publishers didn't believe you. So basically, I told all the other uh, publishing houses, uh, put it nice. I told them to stick it. Let's put it that way. You're calling me a liar. Now you want the story because we got the proof. All right, Anthony, thank you. And I'm telling you, I can't wait for part two of When the Bullet Hits the Bone. Stan Geyer worked for Washington State for 25 years. And when he was in the Navy, he used to spend time in the ship's library reading sci-fi and fantasy books and thought, I could write one of those. So around 2008, he got started. And now he's published Archangels. It starts out with a gentleman who retires at the age of 65. He After he retires, he gets the worst of all kind of news that he has cancer. And his doctor wants to set him up with a regiment of therapy to cure his cancer. But a friend of his, who's his lawyer, suggests a cancer research project in New Mexico. And he and a friend of his decide that they're going to take part in this project. From there, the story goes a little sideways with a flu pandemic. Then it blossoms into a conflict between good and evil. One of the treatments that the two main characters received changes them, and they become archangels. 
And the source of the evil is another person takes the remainder of the serum and he becomes a demon. And then the two main characters trying to defeat him. Because if they don't, what happens? He takes over, but of course they defeat him. And they also find out that there was two other people that got that serum, but they're not in the United States. One of them's in England and the other one's in Russia. That's why a second book comes into play, because now they've got to pull together all this other stuff. Okay. I left about two or three things hanging out there so I can work on a second book and develop the rest of the story. Um. Locally, one of the radio stations here is having a big on-air auction, and I donated five copies of my book to the auction, and I will personally autograph those books. I've spoken with the local Barnes & Noble, and I will shortly be doing a book signing with them. And here a couple of months ago... I had the opportunity to sit down with a high school class and do a meet-the-author kind of thing where they really tore me apart as far as some very insightful questions about the process of getting books published. And one young lady is thinking about writing a book of her own, so i gave her some words of encouragement to keep trying and keep working at it and because you never know it just might get published hey you're proof of that nice that you're giving back to the community stan thanks not a full-time job with an insurance company or pursuit of her master's degree could stop gina marie martini once she sat down and started writing the mistress chronicles and not just one book there's three I was watching a political broadcast on television. I was watching the hearing impaired interpreter. And I just had this vision of people using sign language to speak to each other without anyone around them hearing what they had to say. And I just started to build the story in my head after that. And um, I created a character in the story who's deaf. And I just took that that one moment, which does play out in The Mistress Chronicles, the two people using sign language to communicate privately. And the series itself revolves around a man named Tommy who inherits a hotel and casino on the Strip of Las Vegas in the 70s. It's written from the perspective of a young woman named Angie, who ultimately becomes Tommy's mistress. There's um, depression, substance abuse, mental illness teen pregnancy, the mafia, of course. I mean, it's 70s Las Vegas. You have to bring up the mafia in some way. She was born and raised in a very sheltered world. Um, She was homeschooled. She always had a man controlling her. She was only 18 when she meets him. Eventually, he does confide in her that he's married, but he's getting divorced. And um, time goes on, and he's still married, and he still gives her a lot of excuses. But he takes care of her. He takes her away from her family. He sets her up in some beautiful ritzy area in this house, and they travel together. He's a hotel and casino owner. He's trying to build his own business and uh, make more money and become more powerful. And his brother is the deaf character 
teacher. She develops a really nice relationship with his brother, John. She learns sign language to, you know, keep her relationship with John and with Tommy going. She also, uh, you know, has a lot of her own family drama. Um, she She's estranged from her mom. And throughout the story, you don't really know if her mother's dead or alive. And she only really knows, you know, being raised by her father, who um, he was found murdered. So her uncle kind of takes over that role as guardian before she meets Tommy. And then she ends up with Tommy, who is also a very controlling person too. So she's very used to being controlled by men. And every once in a while, she she tries to start to get, you know, her own footing. And um, when she finds out she can't have children, she's very devastated over that. And she um, self-medicates alcohol and drug use. So this story goes on through how many books? Well, each one of my books is written from the perspective of a different person. So the first story, I do kind of wrap things up for Angie. Oh. This, yeah, the second story, if it's called Moonlight Confessions, is written from the perspective of Tommy's wife. So then you're going to get a completely different side of the story and a different side of Tommy's world. I have a website. It's just GinaMarieMartini.com. I'm on social media. I've made local TV appearances um, in Connecticut here. Um, and had several book signings at Barnes & Noble. Um, I've also done a few local fairs, did a local news article as well. So I think, you know, that got a lot of traction for me. And how did you wind up on TV? I just actually called like the local stations and there is definitely a fee attached to it. They don't advertise you for free, but I will say that I did get a lot of traction from that interview. I got um, almost a thousand hits on my website just after doing that TV interview. Way to promote Gina Marie. Good for you. That's one thing authors do not realize is the lengths that you have to go to draw attention to yourself. There's a lot of authors out there. And if you have to buy some time on a local station, it's it's really not as expensive as you might think it is. And it might be well worth it if you know, you get a couple of book sales. All right, Robert Wenzel is the COO of a natural gas company in Ohio with a creative mind that keeps him up at night and led him down the road to publish Thoughts of Another Day, Poems for the Common Man. I've always kept a a journal and, and just started writing thoughts down and then started putting it into, you know, where it made sense and putting it into poetry and and then, you know, I'd go a long time and, and not do anything. And then I'd, I'd jump in and do stuff. And I just uh, started putting them together and, and uh, had, you know, 100 and, 100 and some poems. And uh, some of them have something to do with, with me and some of them don't. You know, some of them are just thoughts that pop into my head and almost like song lyrics or, or poems, you know. Some of it in the industry. I've been in the motorcycle industry my entire life and, been riding motorcycles my entire life and it just some, some of them are inspired by that you know and traveling and, and things like that so do you have a favorite one, one of my my favorites uh, it's called 1977 or so it was one of the very first ones i did i put together you want to read some of it we were young and full of piss and vinegar there was a spark in our eyes our minds were racing with oh so much energy The days were long. We loved those blue skies. We ran at dawn and rode till dark. Winters were cold. The snow was deep. We had each other's back, barely ever apart. Didn't know where we were going, but mostly required a Jeep. Our hair was long. Our parents didn't understand. Our thoughts and convictions were written in stone. Didn't want the fun to end. It was always, yes, we can. 
the years pass, things change, thoughts of being alone. I miss those days never to return. We were so strong, now we can lean toward weak. It's a bitch to get old, for love we yearn. Like a rock, our mind and body could not break. Our kids are grown, they will take our place. Things are different, it's only a memory. God look over us and keep our family safe. Like my dad used to say, let's not stand on ceremony. Keep our heads up and move forward. The years are moving quickly, oh no. Live, love, and laugh. Don't get bored. What happened? Where did they go? 1977 or so. Nice. And then that was dedicated to about four, four of my best friends that we just did a lot of stuff together. Do you go to open mic nights, or are you able to read your poetry anywhere? Well, I, I, I haven't done that yet. There's a couple places locally that, that I can do that, and uh, there's some other things we talked about, some... You know, my wife wrote a children's book. She did a couple book signings, and I talked to them, and they said, oh, absolutely. You know, we had your wife in here. It'd be great to have you in here. And I have not done that yet, but there's a pretty small town. They have a, it's called the Jupiter in, uh, in Alliance, Ohio, and they have people come in and do that, and always new talent and a lot of artwork in there, and it's a pretty cool little place. All right, Robert, that'll get you started. Let me know how you make out. Ralph Bololi started writing at 18 when he was racing and building cars. He wound up doing some weekly drag racing columns and later took a class in creative writing. And now he's published his book, The Land of Philanstasy. So there is eight short stories and uh, a novella at the end and then a little ditty at the very end, which I call it's a little poem about it's called to be and not to be a bee. And, uh, that was just something I sat down and thought about and wrote in a, in a day. Do you have a favorite short story? I, I'm trying to think of which one I would pick. Uh, <laughs> the latest stories, uh, there's four older stories and four newer stories. And I think the newer stories, one called uh, It's a Crime to Write. It's about a blind writer uh, who uh, gets murdered. And uh, But he had a computer that uh, he talked into, and when he was being murdered by someone you don't know who, if it's male or female or who it is, everything said, he said was on the computer but not the murderer because it would only take his voice. Oh. And that computer goes back to his publisher who lent it to him, and it goes to another writer who isn't blind, and then he starts searching through it and he hears the murderer. And uh, it turns out to be a, uh, a killer who's after writers. He had a reason for killing writers. And uh, anyhow, then it gets solved, of course. I put it in a couple of bookstores here in Sedona, which isn't going to go far. And uh, then there's a company called Folio Avenue. Have you heard of them? No. Out of San Francisco? They want to handle the book and put it in two, two cities, uh, New York and, and California trouble is it cost me you know yeah i've got posters i've got a video and uh of an interview and i've got uh got another uh six books that they want to put three in each uh each bookstore one in new york and one in california you know the stories in there are are very out i mean they're not something that you're going to read uh as somebody's you know just a mystery it is short and uh well, the longest 
the longest one is a novella. Uh, that's 18,000 words. And uh, most of the short stories are no more than uh, uh, 6,500 words. All right, Ralph. Thanks so much. Lucio A. Grasso was in the pizza and deli business in New York and New Jersey before he moved to Florida for two of his children who suffer with spinal muscular atrophy. His book, Miss Silly Strings, is dedicated to his son, Nicholas, who passed away in December at the age of 15. It was a poem Lucio wrote that he decided to turn into a children's story. It's a story about a, a little girl who has three cats that keep having kittens. And as she has the kittens through the months of the year, they grow up and she gives them away. So each cat has three kittens. You got three, six, you got nine kittens. And with the three cats, that's that's 12 cats. Okay. So there's a little bit of mathematics. There's a little bit of multiplication. There's subtraction when she gives the cats away. And there's addition when the cats have more kittens. <laughs> that plays out in a whole year. She tells the story to us. It was all in time. She tells the story starting on uh, New Year's Day and ending on New Year's. Okay. And they get to see the rain. They get to see the snow. They get to see the leaves. Uh, I drew out all the illustrations and and I, I wrote them out. So they knew what colors were this and sun, the apples on the trees and the snow. Yeah, the messages uh, teach children how to read. Uh, older people that can't read how to read a fun story. You know, something that I know when I was a kid, I got books every month and I still have those books. I remember all the stories and I play them back in my head if I want, you know, remembering how I learned to read. And I think other people can do the same thing. If I can do it, so can other other children and adults. Nice. Learn from this book. Giving something back is the best gift you can give. Absolutely. Well, I've been doing it word of mouth. Every time we go to the doctor's office, I bring, I bring the book with me. It's in my car. And when I go out, I take it with me and I meet people along my path and I introduce them to my book and they take pictures and whatnot. And I don't know if they buy them. I have a friend of mine that just made me sign her book the other day. She bought one for her granddaughter. Nice. And uh, my third book is called Rosie, Miss Silly Strings and my daughter Rosie. And Rosie's in a wheelchair and it's going to introduce children to other children with special needs. And I was thinking that when I did that third book that I could, I hopefully I made enough money on the first two books to have this, the, fourth, the third book published and then put the proceeds from that book into spider muscular atrophy. I got tons of poetry on my floppy disk. Now I have no place to... Oh, jeez. Yeah. You know, so lucky I wrote everything down. Yeah. <laughs> I have composition books just filled with poetry and short stories. And I think these three novels that, that I've written, the children's books, because I've written the other two already. I think that uh, they can really help, you know, not just with children, but, but, but teenagers and older adults that have problems. Well, it's a great idea, Lucio. Good luck with it. Finally, need to make some extra cash? Nathan Hatchie has done the research and shares the intel in his book entitled Additional Ways to Earn More They Don't Teach. Some of us are stuck doing what we don't want to do. What is it that you're good at that you can capitalize on it? And for those that are not aware or just don't know or don't know what questions to ask, I just researched some of the ideas, put the 26 tips in the book, three or four of them I do personally, and the rest are not meant for me, but they might be meant for you or for someone else. I mean, I believe there's always a butt for every seat. So it was just a general idea of putting some of those tips in there. 
now you know about them and this is how you do them. Um, there's ways to invest money to make your money earn more money, whether it be stocks or bonds or whatnot. There's also ways to invest in real estate with as little as $500 cash. I talk about that in the book. You know, there's also writing a blog. There's websites that pay for that. Some people are, have the gift of gab and YouTube channels are very good for that or podcasts. And if you have a good social media following, even if you have no social media following and you just have an idea, there's anything to like cooking, to just talking sports, to what's funny, what's not, sport highlights. I mean, I've seen low budget podcasts or low budget YouTube channels that talk about the Minnesota Vikings that that get like two, three, four thousand subscribers in. Advertisers pay for that. All right. Is there one that worked for you in particular? I personally love investing in real estate. I love investing in stocks. Just put a little bit here and there. I talk about that in the book. Um, I personally love writing. That's my gift. That's what I was born with. Some people have different gifts. It's just the way it goes. It's just a matter of putting that gift to use. And I wrote that book as inspiration on hopefully tapping into your gifted potential. And when you put your gift to use... That only opens up more doors for you. So have you made money writing? I have. I know books are written by professional financial advisors. I know books are written by, you know, multimillionaires out there. But what separates my book apart, it comes from me, comes off authentically. And I personally believe I just don't want to put any junk out there. I've researched these tips for well over a year and it's a book you can get value from. I mean, not every tip is something you're going to want to implement. It's not something you're going to want to do. But I promise you, there's something in there for you. Even if it's just one tip, that tip was well, that book is well worth your investment. And it's just something I want to see personally out there that I felt I didn't see before that was more directional. Like, here's how you can do it. Here's who, what, when, where, and how if you want to get started. All right, Nathan, I'm always ready to make a little cash. But, you know, sometimes I'm just afraid to take the leap. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like writing a book, right? You got to take the leap. Come up with an idea. Start writing down your thoughts. And as you will hear week after week, once you get started, once you take that first step, you'll be on your way. Thanks for listening to the Reader House Authors Roundtable. I'm Alice Stockton-Rossini. 